All right, real quick, let me go grab my Trons off the shelf. Give me a second. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. What's the smile? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week we are taking a look at a movie that is a sequel of a film that came out many years before it, just like Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. But we're going to take a look at Tron Legacy, and our theme will be uh, Connection in a Digital World. And to do that, I have a brand new guest. I have Matt here to join me. He's the editor-at-large of Talk Film Society and the co-host of the podcast, Hey, What You Watching? So, hey, Matt, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. So before we get started, why don't you tell people about, you know, the website that you work for and the podcast that you co-host and where they can find those two things. All right. Yeah. Talk Film Society is a website that uh, Marcelo J. Pico, he's he started the Twitter handle a few years back. And last year we got the idea. We Let's start a website. So we have a website. We started it back in November of last year. So it's almost a year old. Yay. Go us. Nice. Um, I have a horror column over there called Screams from the Crypt, where I look at catalog releases like uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, uh, stuff like that. That's a lot of fun. Uh, we also have a, we have a bunch of writers. We have about 10 writers on staff, and uh, everyone has their own column. It's a lot of fun. And we just try to put out some really uh, interesting and unique stuff for people that are tired of the run-of-the-mill movie website. And for Hey, What You Watching, that's a show that uh, Marcel and I started a year and a half, two years ago, where we basically just get together once a week and shoot the breeze about what we've been watching in the last week. Uh, we have a lot of cool guests that come on. Uh, over the summer, we had uh, actor uh, and director now, uh, Pat Healy. He was a mm. guest. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we got to talk about Cheap Thrills with him and uh, his new movie, Take Me, which is playing on Netflix. So that was a really fun episode. And uh yeah, it's a good time, and uh, I've talked to a bunch of people who say, yeah, we like it. It's good. <laughs> nice. Excellent. All right, so before I jump into the psychology and all that stuff, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? So you wanted me to put together like a little double feature that you could watch with Tron Legacy, huh? I'm going to go back to another late 70s uh, Disney film. Uh, the Black Hole, starring Anthony Perkins. It's not often that you get a Disney movie that isn't part of a huge franchise, and I feel that, sure, there have been two Trons and a cartoon, but it's not really a franchise, yeah. and I think The Black Hole fits into that quite well. Uh, sure, the effects might not hold up as well as they did back then, mm -hmm. but it's still a really cool story of... Uh, it's basically that movie, Event Horizon, for kids. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually uh, a pretty good description of the black hole. It's not bad. With a bunch of goofy robots. And right. the robots are fun. And their robot sidekick is super cute. And Anthony Perkins, as always, brings 110% to his role. Yeah, that is that is definitely one way to put it, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one way, yeah. <laughs> so what about your second movie? What, what are we watching with, with the black hole? This is a tough one. This is a super tough one. Let's just go for Event Horizon. How about that? Oh, there you go. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> so once, once uh, I mean, if you have kids, once you put they the go kids to bed, to bed yeah, exactly. Then, then you know, hey, I mean, and it's a great movie because when you watch it, you don't need eyes to see. It's just wonderful. All right, great. That's a good little double feature there. Uh, we're going to take a <laughs> yeah. break, uh, and then I will talk about connection in a digital world, and then we'll bring Matt back to talk about Tron Legacy. Oh boy. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB 
thelastnewwavefilmreview.com for episodes or following on Twitter or Facebook at The Last New Wave. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So it's a little bit of a long title, but we're talking about human connection in a digital world. And that's kind of the world we're living in, right? Like everything is social media, everything is connected, and sometimes we have trouble connecting with our fellow human beings on a real level. So I have a a couple articles that we're going to talk about. The first one is from someone named Ray Williams. He's talking about why it's so hard to actually unplug from the digital world. So he starts off this article talking about like this feeling that I think a lot of us can uh, can connect with. This idea of panicking if you forgot your phone while you went on an errand or you've checked your message in the middle of a, uh, a dinner out with your partner or if you've left a social gathering because you've spent more time connecting with your Twitter network than talking personally to people at the gathering. Uh, we answer texts and emails on our way home from work during dinner or when we're having conversations with families. Some of us go on vacation and find it really difficult to be without our phones or internet connections. Or we might, we wake up in the middle of the night and have the urge to send an email or check the status on your social media sites. So if this is true, according to this author, this is probably me, you may be dependent or even addicted to the digital virtual world. And this digital world dependence might be physically disconnecting you from other people and yourself. So Sandra Miller, a journalism professor at the University of Maryland, took a look at 200 students aged 18 to 21 who had been asked to unplug from all forms of media for 24 hours. And she actually concluded that, quote, most college students are not just unwilling, but functionally unable to be without their media links to the world. One student said, I am clearly addicted and the dependency is sickening. Another student said, texting and IMing my friends gives me a constant feeling of comfort. When I don't have these two things, I feel really alone and secluded from my life. So this study concluded that the students use literal terms of addiction to characterize their dependence on media. And in their world, going without social media meant going without their friends and family. Having only a casual relationship with news media with no particular loyalty, they don't make a distinction between factual news and personal views, and they put as much credence in the views of friends as quote-unquote experts. Uh, They also tend to constantly text or be on Facebook, often just seconds apart. And they could live without TV and newspapers, but couldn't, quote, survive without smartphones, iPads, iPods, and similar devices. One student was quoted as saying, I only use newspapers to clean my windows. So following this 2010 study, a dozen different universities in the United States and around the world are now engaging in a research project that's called The World Unplugged, based on the template of this study. And they found that people aged 18 to 34 have an average of 319 online connections, and that's compared to an average of 198 connections for the 35 to 46-year-old group. The study also recently reported that 63% of teenagers text message with friends on a daily basis. Not a big surprise there. 39% speak on the phone daily, and just 35% interact face-to-face outside of school. There's other research out there that has found that teens who text a lot tend to send more than 100 messages per day. A 2010 study from Kaiser actually found a correlation between media consumption and poor academic performance. So the more media you consume, the poorer your academic performance is. 21% of young people between the ages of 8 and 18 consume at least 16 hours of media per day. 17% consume less than 3 hours per day. 47% of these heavy users reported typically earning grades of C or lower in school compared to just 23% of the light users. Twice as many heavy users as light users reported getting in trouble frequently. So it's not just the grades, but it's actually behavioral too. There's actually a study about people at work, and they found that the average office worker enjoys no more than three minutes at a time at work without interruptions. The average American spends at least eight and a half hours a day in front of a computer or other screen, and the number of hours American adults spent online doubled between 2005 and 2009. So this problem has expanded into the workplace, too. Uh, Work is no longer restricted to the office or your actual place of work. You can actually bring it home where you will be more distracted. So what can actually be done about this dependency? So one company actually decided to take a really daring step. They put a zero email policy in place in 2013. This company argued that only 10% of the 200 electronic messages that all these employees are getting around the globe, only 10% are useful. So they decided to just get rid of it completely. And there's a study by researchers at the University of California and the United States Army that shows that being cut off from work email for blocks of time actually reduces stress. It 
including lowering cortisol levels and heart rates, and allows employees to focus better when they're on the job. So one thing this author points out that's really important is that when he's talking to CEOs and and executives in high-powered companies, they've kind of redefined their identity as successful professionals into this belief that you can only be successful and important if you're plugged in 24-7. But at the same time, an equal amount of energy is being spent developing this greater self-awareness and being connected to the inner self physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So if you're able to spend that time, you're able to divide that time between half your time being connected and half your time disconnecting and connecting with yourself, you're actually going to be a much better and more complete person. So one way we can actually use the digital world to connect is is done in mental health, actually. So there's this this burgeoning area of mental health where we can do therapy via things like Skype, right? So in conventional mental health care, the therapist, like a psychologist or a counselor, develops this relationship with the client that is characterized by trust, empathy, and support, hopefully. Regardless of the type of therapy being done, the consensus among research is that the relationship can be healing in itself. When therapists are actively listening, understanding, communicating effectively, and being warm, clients report better experiences and show better health outcomes. But technology is changing this relationship, in some cases because the therapist is technology. Nowadays, you can actually work through depression with the help of a chatbot or overcome a phobia using a virtual reality headset. Or you can get through anxiety using a self-guided online program. But if you prefer a real person, on the other end, there's a lot of services that have these video appointments that I was talking about. There's also phone calls and text messaging with therapists that you don't ever have to meet, and that really can help people with anxiety. So, but there's a question that comes up with this. So, are you missing out on something of of the advantages of this human connection? So, if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship, you know that no matter how often you communicate over video or instant messages, it's not quite as great as when you get to spend time physically together. And the same might be true of mental health care. So technology is altering the way we interact and sometimes replacing therapists completely. So the risk is that bond that we talked about, which really helps with healing, might be diminished. So there's a a survey out there when asked how they'd like to receive therapy, 67% preferred face-to-face meetings compared to 7% who would opt for internet-based treatment. But on the other side of things, Uh, people might get therapy who otherwise wouldn't. There's a number of reasons for that. You can have people who are in really rural areas who would not want to travel to get therapy, or you can have people that feel stigmatized and don't want to be caught out in public seeing their therapist. So sometimes people are just too ashamed to open up honestly about their struggles to another person face-to-face, even when that person is a non-judgmental therapist. So technology enables people to just really get past this pretty easily. So there was a study in which over 200 people talked with a virtual human, that is an artificially intelligent avatar that asked questions like a therapist would uh, during a clinical interview and developed rapport uh, through compassion, like saying, I'm sorry to hear that, and nonverbal behaviors like nodding. And half of the participants were led to believe that the virtual human was being operated by a real person in another room where half thought it was a computer program. Those who thought it was a human felt more apprehensive about sharing personal details and were actually more guarded. And the people who thought they were interacting with a program engaged in less of this impression management. So they were more comfortable giving out secrets and being vulnerable to technology than to an actual person. So this finding suggests that the technology-user relationship provides a protective factor that the therapist-client relationship does not. They'll be easier to trust. It doesn't mean you can't gain greater trust with a human therapist and actually do more work, but at first you're going to have less anxiety about possible judgment from the, the kind of fake therapist, the therapist who's not a human. So hopefully it'll become possible to have the best of both worlds. So researchers are actually now working on better simulating human connection through technology. For example, they're designing these interfaces that mimic body language, demonstrate engaged listening, express empathy, reciprocate with sharing personal stories, which is getting a little creepy, uh, employ emotional intelligence, and make people feel cared for. These advances may bridge the divide between human and virtual therapist and actually empower a lot of people to get help they need that they wouldn't get if if they had this fear of stigma going on. But it's important to note that the nuances of in-person interactions and kind of the complexities of human psychology make this therapeutic alliance really difficult to replicate virtually. 
So it's hard to imagine, at least now, that any technology can, or even should, fully kind of substitute this relationship between therapists and clients. After all, actually bonding with other people is a fundamental human need, whether you are seeking help for mental health issues or not. So I think it's going to be really interesting to talk to my guest, Matt, about how he feels about our main character's relationship with his father. Because even before he joins the grid, he is not exactly always there for his child. Like, he kind of pops in and tells stories and is pretty awesome, and then goes back to work really focusing on kind of opening this grid and kind of changing the world, which is a really good you know, thing to try to do, but it makes me wonder how that's going to affect their relationship. So, as I said, you know, we will get him back on here, but we're going to take a break right now uh, so you can hear about a podcast maybe you should listen to, and then we'll bring Matt back to talk about Tron Legacy. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. <laughs> Better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so we're back. So we're back to actually talk about the movie. So before we really jump into it, I want to talk about our histories with this movie. So I have a feeling mine will be much shorter than yours. I just have an inkling that that's true. Uh, so my history with this is I actually saw this opening day uh, on a gigantic 3D screen uh, and really enjoyed it. And then uh, never really had the urge to watch it again uh, until this. I actually owned it because, like, I think right at, right when this came out, they released, like, a Blu-ray double feature with Tron and Tron Legacy. And I was like, I'll definitely watch Tron Legacy again. Uh, and then it just didn't happen. So this is actually my second watch of this movie many years later. Uh, but what about you? What's your history with Tron Legacy? All right. I grew up watching the original Tron. I uh, It's... I grew up like a, a big horror and sci-fi geek, and this was one of those movies that uh, my parents rented for me when I was a little kid. They're like, hey, it's a Disney movie, but it's different. You should check it out. And plus, yeah. you like video games, so you're going to love this. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up watching Tron. I loved it, and I always wondered why the heck wasn't there another one? Mm -hmm. And then about – it came out in 2010. Yeah, about seven years ago, uh, this one came out, uh, Tron Legacy, and – I loved it when I saw it in theaters. Much like you, I saw it on a giant screen. Uh, it was gorgeous, some great 3D, and I didn't revisit it for a long time. Hmm. And then back about you know a year ago, I got a brand new giant TV, and I was like, you know what? I want to see what Tron Legacy looks right. like on this thing. <laughs> and oh boy, is this thing gorgeous. Uh, it's, a, it's just a really good directorial debut. Hmm. Uh, by Joseph Kaczynski. I think he does a really good job here uh, within the restraints of, you know, studio mandated uh, things here and there. Sure. And there's only some, you know, I have some minor screenplay issues with it. I could have used more Tron in my Tron sequel. Sure. That would have been, Imagine that that. been something. Imagine <laughs> that. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I love uh, a lot of things about this. I, I love the visual design. I, I love Daft Punk. I love Jeff Bridges. Even, you know, the CGI bobblehead Jeff Bridges, which <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, sure, the tech, the tech wasn't really there yet, but gosh darn it, they tried and right. they've kind of like made strides in that technology since. I mean, if you've seen movies like Ant-Man and uh, Guardians 2, where they de-age these actors, it's like, oh, wow, they can really do this now. Like, good right. for you guys. Uh, but yeah, no, I love this thing. It's uh just a terrific uh, sci-fi action adventure. It's a lot of fun. All right. So you mentioned uh, the direction of Joseph Kaczynski. So let's dive into that. Um, I think he has a really, really difficult job here uh, because you mentioned the kind of studio constraints and some of its constraints, but some of it's also like you're making a sequel. So you have to somehow mesh the old with the new here. And I really love the original Tron from 1982. I also grew up on it. But it's not a movie that technically, as far as the effects, is going to hold up. It's just, it was never, oh, no. I, you know, it was the top of its class in 1982. But you watch that, you know, 
like decades later and you're like, okay, this it's it's a lot like when so you you mentioned you're a fan of video games. I always remember having this experience of playing video games where the, when you first get a new system and a new game, you're like, God, it looks so real. This is uh-huh. amazing. And then like yep. ten years later you play that old game and you're like uh, this looks like shit. Like these looks yeah. like blocks and nothing else. And I think the original Tron you have, I mean, it's still really enjoyable and really fun. Uh, but you, you have that reaction of like, oh yeah, this doesn't really hold up as far as the technical aspect. Yeah. But Kaczynski has to try and blend that aesthetic with this new, you know, with all of the new toys he has to play with. And I think he actually does a really good job at staying true to the old look along with updating it. Oh, most definitely. I mean, he gets that feel. He gets that Tron feel Mm -hmm. down pat. And I mean, like I said, story issues aside, this is a great rip-roaring adventure. Right. Yeah. And I think he also does a good job of it, it would be easy to stay true to that vision and then have you enter this world and it not seem overwhelming and intimidating, which it needs to be for this movie. We have to have our main character come into this world and be not only in awe, but he has to create a sense of danger. Uh, did you, when you watch this, you know, the first time and now, did you, did you feel that sense of danger and that risk? Oh, most definitely. I mean, once the, uh, I guess, what would you call them? The clue guards, I yes. guess. Once sure, they not? go after him, <laughs> once they go after him, it's like, oh, okay, these guys mean business mm-hmm. and there's menace behind them. It's, it's, uh, it gets to you. I think I would even argue that there's menace even before that. Like when he first shows up, like just how big everything is and how quickly everything's moving, you know? And it's just like, it's really impressive because in a movie that you know has to be technically phenomenal, like sure, you have earlier in the movie with his kind of, you know, know, skydiving off the top of the building and you have a lot of fun going on there. I do too. Yeah, I think it's great. It's a great introduction. With random... Random Killian Murphy? Yeah, right. I, I completely <laughs> forgot he was in this movie. I was like, so did I. I might not even have recognized that he was in this movie when I first saw it. And then I rewatched yeah. it and I was like, oh, that stands out because you are. It's like, what, uh, are you, what are you doing here? Yes. I guess he was supposed to like be in Tron 3, but, you know, that never happened. Yeah, but now we got Jared Leto, uh, wanting, Jared Leto wanting to be in Tron 3 just to ruin everything good. I'm um, good. <laughs> we can stop. It's fine. Um, good on that. Fine. But yeah, when he enters that world, like there is that sense of this is new, this is different, and this is huge. And this is something that he is not ready for, regardless of his ridiculous confidence level, which which you definitely get from Garrett Hedlund here. And I, and, I, and I like him. I like him as an actor. He's he's a good action lead. And I think he carries this movie pretty well when he's forced to. Right. But I think the most important thing in the direction here, and this is like a really amorphous kind of statement, but it's just cool, man. Like it really is. And it has to be like, it has to capture that feeling of, and I think you get that with some of that overwhelming nature that this has to be amazing. And he really does find a way to capture that. And I think it's easy to negate what Kaczynski does here because it is insanely special effects heavy and i think sometimes almost yeah sometimes directors of these movies when you're working with green screen when you're working with you know cgi they their their efforts get get kind of ignored but it takes a special kind of director to make a movie like this and to make it i mean even even to make it basically understandable is really a gift a lot of directors couldn't do this and he and i think he does a really good job of putting us in that world and making this you know, making this able to be comprehended at all. I was just going to mention that. I mean, the world building he does in this. I mean, sure, it's like it's a sterile uh, computer world, but it feels lived in. Yeah, somehow. I mean, it really does. I mean, and then you have the scene. So one of my favorite sequences is any part that takes place in in Michael Sheen's nightclub. Oh, yes. (laughs) I... And God bless Michael and, Sheen for just going for it. <laughs> I love him. Go. I love Michael Sheen going full David Bowie. Right. <laughs> and, and it works. It really works. Uh, he hired the best DJs in the business for his nightclub. Very That's true. pretty cool of him. Uh, yeah. I mean, the nightclub scenes are awesome. And then you have that terrific action sequence uh, in the nightclub. Yes, definitely. Still blows my mind. Like, yeah, even now, like as I was like, watching like, it, like this could have been made this year. And yeah. I would have been like, yeah, that's that's a really good action sequence. Yeah, Kaczynski's good at filming action because, sure, all this crazy shit is happening. 
And but you understand what is happening. Like you have a sense of space. You have a, a sense of like relation to like where characters are. It's not just like you see with a lot of other action directors where it's just shaky cam and you really can't right. make out what is happening. These are like smooth camera movements, and he's right. taking his time and showing you the action on display. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's another thing he probably didn't get a lot of credit for in this movie is how good the action really looked because I think it actually would have been even easier than for most movies to just make it confusing and expect the audience to go, well, it was cool, so whatever. Uh, Well, it was a video game. That's fine. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's got that built-in excuse, right? Like it's supposed to look like a video game, so if it it glitches or it doesn't look quite right, that's fine. That's part of the world building. (laughs) But no, he really took his time and made it work. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the acting. So I think we're going to disagree on at least on at least one of these because I, Garrett Headland, man, I wish he was good, uh, but he's tough to watch for me. I think he is he is actually much better in that opening sequence than he is in the rest of the movie. And luckily, the rest of the movie I is see that. is so awe inspiring that it almost doesn't matter. Like he's supposed to be in a lot of ways. He's supposed to be an everyman. He's supposed to be someone who walks into this world not knowing anything, and then things and just, just happen. What is happening? Him. What yeah. is this? I mean, he has yeah. the you know Keanu Reeves in the first Matrix before he kind of becomes aware. Yes. Just kind of that. Yeah, yeah. Whoa! Like, and he does that yeah. very well. <laughs> but I don't think he's going. I I would be shocked if if his career ever ever kind of took off after this. Like, I just don't think. I think he's good looking, which really helps. And I think it he does. has, the, he, I just wish he had more charisma. Like if he just had a little he, more, I think this would work I've, so much better. I've seen him. I've seen him in other things where he really does knock it out of the park. I don't know if you saw um, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, but I was a big fan of him in that, in like his small supporting role. We're just as not going to talk about that movie. Cause I despise that movie. That movie. Oh, almost I broke me. I hated it. <laughs> oh wow i love that movie. so in the interest of our working together uh and being friends we should just not talk about that movie at oh, all. Boy. But, I, but i don't think he was bad like i just i had issues with the movie as a whole so you could see like you know he's an interesting actor to watch in that movie um which is which is i think better than most of his other performances i think he's usually not asked to do much and i think sometimes that's the curse of of the leading man of being the kind of stereotypical yeah. good looking actor. It's like, they're not going to ask you to do the Steve Buscemi <laughs> role. You know, they're, they're just going to ask you to sit there and look pretty and carry this movie as far as you can take it. And I think he yeah, does exactly. a fine job of that. Be the face. Yeah, exactly. So now we move to Jeff Bridges. So I love Jeff Bridges. Like I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to dislike a performance of his, but my qualm with this performance here is you know the the real Jeff Bridges, not the not the computer generated kind of wonky yes. looking Jeff Bridges, uh, but good for the time, good for what what they could work with. I felt like yeah, there was that... a little too much of the dude in this performance. Like it got really distracting for me, and I even remember this on first watch where I was like, "This doesn't feel like Kevin Flynn. Like this feels like the Big Lebowski." And it's entertaining, and it's fun, and it's interesting. But I I just felt like this is the period of time where Jeff Bridges started to become. I'm just going to play Jeff Bridges in everything I do. Uh, and yeah, that's works. what he does. It's yeah, thing. I just wish there was more Kevin Flynn and less Jeff Bridges in this movie. I could see that. I could see that. I mean, but also you got to understand he's been in this world for so long. Sure. And his anger at everything has kind of like subsided and he's just kind of mellowed out like, over the whatever, years, I man. guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's whatever, like, whatever happens, man. happens. <laughs> Clue, clue can do whatever he wants. It's fine. Whatever. Yeah, I'm off the grid, uh, man. It's fine. <laughs> I'm off the grid. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I like Jeff Bridges in anything. Right. I mean, there's He's nothing. I, there's nothing about the performance that is bad. It's just like bringing bringing that Jeff Bridges uh, his yeah. his baggage. It's not. With it. It's not bad, but it just might not fit perfectly. Right. Well, what did you think about his kind of vocal performance as Clue? I thought it was interesting. I thought um, it sounded like a younger Jeff Bridges. I'm, I'm guessing they did some kind of they like had to have. There's no yeah, way I, you could recreate <laughs> young Jeff Bridges. But right. I mean, I thought it was good. I thought it was good for the fact that he is a computer construct. Right. And I thought it was legitimately a scary performance. 
Like there, yeah, there are moments like there where you're like, terrifying. Oh, Jeff Bridges is evil. This is fucked up. I don't need this in my life. Yeah, this, this is this is weird. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like it's kind of like seeing uh, Tom Hanks play a bad guy. You're like, I don't know about this. Right. Like, I don't you're, know. You're, like you're America's hero. How dare you? You can't play this kind of part. And yeah. he definitely did have that reaction. So I think it. I think that actually really helps the performance. Is that it's yeah. such a shock to our system. And I think I guess the other you know quote unquote big star here is Olivia Wilde. Um, I adore her, <laughs> and I thought she was really good here. And I remember, oh, she's great, yeah. I remember when this movie came out. I don't think she was. I mean, she was known, but she wasn't that well known in 2010. And I was just kind of expecting, honestly, a completely disposable, maybe yeah. even bad performance. But I think she actually gives the movie a little bit of heart. Like she is the yeah, one she... who sacrifices. She is the one who cares yeah. more than uh, more than Kevin Flynn does. And I and I think. I think honestly, if you take out, if you take away that character, I think this movie kind of falls flat on its face, and then it just becomes uh, a special effects extravaganza and nothing underneath it. Exactly. Uh, no, I thought she was terrific in this. And before this movie, you're right, I really hadn't seen her in much mm-hmm. at all. Uh, obviously, since then, we've seen her in a lot of things, and not all good. Always. But... <laughs> But but she is impressive for yeah. the most part. I mean, I really did like her in um, in Rush a few years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought she was really good in that. Uh, yeah, I like her as an actress. I think she has talent. It's just that you know sometimes the the movies she chooses, hmm. eh, you know, could be better. They're not, eh, be they're better. not that great. <laughs> eh, you know. And we we mentioned Michael Sheen, and I think you know he's one of those actors that. Whenever he shows up, I actually had this discussion with someone about Richard Jenkins. He's one of those actors that whenever he shows up, I feel like I'm in good hands. Like, even if it's a bad movie, I'm like, I'm going to enjoy that. And I know it. Like, whether you're talking about Twilight movies or you're talking about Tron Legacy, you know when he shows up. Oh, he was in those, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. (laughs) I haven't seen the the last few. Uh. And he was in Passengers. He was probably the only good thing about Passengers. So, you know, he's one of those actors that when when he shows up, you're just like, it's this. Even if he's playing a villain, you're kind of like, oh, good. Good. This is is going to be all right. And he, and well, it's he the plays same a thing villain here. rather well. Oh, man. He's, and I think uh, this might be my favorite of his villainous performances, I think. I think he's okay, really yeah. good here. Like it's, And a lot of it, of course, is due to the look also. I think that really sells it. Um, yes. But I just love how charming he is in this role. I think he's great. Yeah, he's wonderful in this. And like I said, he goes full Bo- uh, Bowie, and it's awesome. <laughs> Does he? Yes. Um, and I guess uh, it was nice also to see Bruce Boxleitner show up in this movie like that was that was a nice little nice little treat for the audience i think he's really i think he's really good as this kind of father figure in the beginning of the film like i love his interactions uh with sam with garrett headland's character i think i think you you can really feel not only his friendship with with kevin but his kinship uh with sam and and i think that's not an easy thing to do in like five minutes of screen time exactly i do love that scene where he visits him in his little you know great Yes. garage apartment yes. which is an awesome apartment it is pretty great and i guess if you're the you that's a cool you have, idea you have the most stock in a company that's doing that well you know that's you do what you, you want can live on the you can live at the at the at the pier, at the pier in a exactly. car garage <laughs> yes, exactly so now we move to the writing which you said you had some issues with so what were your main issues with the screenplay just uh some of the dialogue uh with Garrett Hedlund. I Can just you even didn't, call didn't... it dialogue? It was just like, uh-huh. it's so stunted. Like, that is actually yeah. the big issue with this movie. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my only real issue. But I mean, the plot, love the plot. So I really have no complaints with that, with the script. You know, and there's, there's a fair amount of rehash in the beginning of this film. Um, yeah, but I think it's actually pretty well done. Like the, the way they set it up as, you know, the dad telling the kid a bedtime story. You know, I think I think that's yeah. a really good way to set up this fantastical world because it is a little bit of a fairy tale, a fairy tale with, you know, all this computer imagery and a lot of overt religious uh, symbols going on, too. Mm-hmm. But it really is a fairy tale. And I think it really works on that level, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a fairy tale with video games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you think they handled the pacing, especially in the beginning of this movie? Because, you know, maybe it was because it was my second time watching it. But I just, even though I really enjoyed the scenes with Sam in the beginning, I still found myself going, can we, we got to get to the grid. 
Like this movie's only, grid. This movie's only two hours long. Like, come on, let's go. Did you did you feel that, or were you happy with the way the film was paced in the beginning? I kind of liked the buildup. Mm. Uh, to be honest, I liked that. Uh, you don't want to you want to give your money shot of the grid so early on. You want to have the fans. I mean, when this movie came out, what the original had come out thirty years before, twenty five years before, twenty eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fans have waited 28 years. You can wait we another can wait 15 minutes. We can wait 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah, that's okay. All right, yeah. that's, that's totally fine. wait another 15 minutes. It's fine. <laughs> but I really do think at the beginning, this idea of this break-in is a really, really smart decision from a script level. Oh, it's cool, because, yeah. I mean, not only is it cool to look at and enjoyable to experience, but without a lot of dialogue, which, let's, let's face it, that's probably not Garrett Hedlund's strength, um, yes. it it allows us to see some character moments, too, that he is not only a risk-taker, but that he's pretty damn capable. So yeah, as he, can, he as he, he slowly, yeah. yeah. So as he slowly succeeds later in the movie, we're not like, oh, what a bunch of bullshit. There's no way yeah. this newbie to the grid <laughs> is going to figure this out that quickly. But the fact that we see him thinking on his feet uh, when when mistakes are made, finding ways out of really difficult uh, circumstances, I think that that helps us believe what happens later. Exactly. Uh, I really do like the fact that you can, like like I said. This guy can handle himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he gets into that first uh, battle with the discs, you're like, all right, maybe he can handle this. Maybe he can do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what did you think? We mentioned kind of the religious symbolism in the script. So what did you think about kind of, uh, one, what did you think about it in general? And two, like kind of how overt it was? Because they weren't exactly hiding this. No, I mean, they don't hide it, but it works uh, for like, for this video simulation world that clue is basically trying to run. Uh, I like it. I think it fits the theme of the movie, which is basically trying to reconnect, but it doesn't, it's not like overbearing. I mean, like you said, it is apparent, but I don't feel that it's overbearing. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point because I think um, if, if you can't enjoy this movie without the religious symbolism, then I think it's bad, but I think you can just enjoy this on a surface level of this is a fun adventure story and it's cool to look at. And if you want to dig deeper, then there's stuff there. I'm not sure how well it truly holds together, uh, but there's a lot there. There's a lot of ideas that they're that they're really looking at. And I think, you know, they make it pretty obvious that in the beginning they're kind of talking about uh, when you first kind of re-meet Kevin Flynn again, when he's still mm. like not in the grid, but in the real world, you know, he really makes it big. Like we're going to change science, medicine, re- like everything. And of yes. course, mentioning religion by name, I thought and that was interesting that they're going to like, OK, uh, you know, you're really definitely trying to make this an epic story. And I kind of respect that, even if there are things about it that don't completely work. You know, I I listened to another another podcast and they always talk about like I respect a dramatic overreach. Like even if it doesn't quite yes. land, you're still like, but you fucking went for it, man, and I love yeah, you that. tried. Yeah, and I'd rather have that than somebody like really sell a movie short and just be like, well, we can't really make that work, so we'll make it much more simple. I like that they yeah. really went for it, and I think you can make a lot of excuses for this movie because it does take place in this grid. So things don't exactly have to line up and it's kind of still okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's why this movie is a success for me. You can watch it on many different, many different ways. And every time you watch it, it reveals something a little new. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I qualify a good movie for me. Yeah. If I can watch it again and again and pick up on new things. Yeah, you've succeeded. You did a good job. Right. Congratulations. What did did you think? uh, So the only thing that sticks out to me as kind of besides the dialogue, as far as really bad about the script is, you know, we have this whole backstory of supposedly Tron being killed and then coming back. And it's like, it's so blatantly obvious. Like the, the camera moves away. They don't show it. And the movie is fucking called Tron legacy. Like we know, (laughs) we know he's coming back. So it felt like it felt kind of cheap to even have this, this the scene of like the supposed guessing. Yeah, it is just like like no one in this audience is fooled, especially people who grew up on the original. Like we know what's yeah. coming here. Honestly, it's it's fine for me. I mean, you know he's coming back. Like you said, the movie's called Tron. <laughs> the movie's called Tron Legacy. So sure I would have loved to have seen him, you know, be the good guy in this movie, like throughout the whole whole film. I would have loved to see him teaming up um 
God, what's his uh, Sam with Sam Flynn. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see him teaming up with him throughout the, the movie. But you know what? The fact that he just has his, his his little shining moment at the end and then those flashbacks. Right. It's fine. It's and, fine. and I do think the shining moment at the end really does work. Like I, I it does. It's yeah. moving. It's surprisingly moving when when all of that goes down for sure. Yeah. All right, so now we move into really the most important section, which is the production value, because this movie is ninety-eight percent production value. Like, oh, it, you can see every dollar on the screen. Oh yeah, you can definitely see the money. Um, so, what do you? Are, are there particular scenes or particular creations that stand out to you? I mean, there's a lot, obviously, but what? What? I, if I were to ask you, like, what about Tron Legacy is so cool? Like, what would be the first thing that jumps to your mind? I love. The the nightclub, obviously. Yes. I I love Flynn's very 2001-esque apartment that he lives in <laughs> off the grid. Yes. That was awesome. I mean, it's it's like, where's Hal? Where's where's Dave? Like, this is right. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love Clue's uh, stadium. Yes. I think I think that, that is kind of really gladiator cool. arena going on. Yes. Yeah, for yes. sure. I love that. I love the way they use the light cycles in this movie uh, going like up and down different levels. I love that. I love the fact that Olivia Wilde's car can like have extra wheels that they like all like they change wheels to deal with the terrain. I think that's a really cool part of the production. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. The nightclub and that apartment that he lives in are just really, really cool. Uh, two of my favorite things in this. Yeah, you know what's interesting? What really stood out to me this time, uh, and it's it's really smart that they do this because it also kind of ties into what I was mentioning at the very beginning, this idea of meshing the old and the new, is yeah. the is Flynn's. Uh, because we have kind of two different yes. Flynn's, right? Like we have when uh, when Sam goes to kind of check out this this pager, talk about a dated reference there, uh, this <laughs> page, and he goes, and it's very old school style. You get, you know, all the old fans of Tron are losing their mind. And says, you know, the, the music starts playing and, you know, the video game set up and you, you really sense that kind of 80s aesthetic. And then as he kind of, you know, moves into the grid, you still have Flynn's, but everything is updated. So I thought, like, what a nice way to kind of connect not only these two worlds, but these two movies together. Oh, yeah, it's terrific. I love the fact that they include Flynn's uh, Flynn's Arcade in this. And uh, it also, you know, watching it uh, got me a little sad because I'm like, oh, wait, arcades aren't a thing anymore. They're gone. Yeah, they don't exist. those, Those places that I grew up in. They're not a thing, mm-hmm. and I'm very sad. Yeah, I'm I definitely had that moment them. too. Yeah, because I remember like – so like just a mildly personal story about me. Like every year that was my birthday party. We would like rent out yeah. like, uh, an arcade, and me and my, all my friends would go play video games for three or four hours, and that was oh my the God, it was best. So, it, it was, was so much fun. It was and now so we're all cloistered and we like – I guess like online gaming is the new version of that. And it's not yeah, quite I'm good the on same. that. I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Too many, like uh, too many racists and homophobes on online gaming. I don't, I don't. Need I just that don't. I don't like. I don't like small children right. in real life. So why would I want to play <laughs> video games with them? That is a good point. In the something, virtual space, something I connect to deeply. Yes, absolutely. And there's oh, also the worst. There's also little things in this movie, like in the beginning of the film where you have the kind of telling the story via these TV screens. And as the movie moves forward in time, mm-hmm. the quality of the TV broadcast gets sharper and sharper. And I was yes. like, and there's so many little touches in this movie that aren't necessary, but they really, you talked about this idea of world building, like even the, the, yes. the extra wheels on the car you were talking about, like that whole sequence is it necessary for it to be that extensive? No, absolutely not. But we find out things about living off the grid and who can go where. And it's all, it's all like, it all ties us to this world as being like, as you mentioned, lived in and a real place, which is so hard to do in a digital world like this. Exactly. Uh, hats off to Kaczynski and his team yeah. for pulling that off. I mean, Hey, they did it. Yeah. I was actually really impressed with also how they handled, uh, bringing in these things that we know from the old Tron, like the like the cycle stuff, like the light uh, cycles, and yeah. The tank. Because you know it's it's like we talked about the original Tron kind of not holding up decades later. You have to be close enough to that look, 
but it's also got to look cool. So you can't just recreate this kind of what would now be shitty, you know, special effects and be like, yeah. remember this? You like this 30 years ago or whatever. <laughs> you like this, right? Yeah. So they, they managed to, again, like have enough of, of the look of the old one, but update it so much that it looks totally different, but you still feel 1982's Tron in its DNA. Yeah, yeah. They they really, they pull from the old, but they make it kind of new. Right, yeah. Which yeah. is super cool. Yeah. And we talked about uh, young Jeff Bridges. It's really disturbing to look at now. Uh, and I even remember then watching it, and it's... It's interesting because sometimes we'll see movies with special effects and you'll be like, that looks so great. And then years later, you'll be like, uh, that doesn't look quite right. Uh, but I think even seeing this uh, seven years ago, there was a part of me that was like, yeah, we're not there yet. Like, I appreciate yeah. you tried and they did a good job, especially later in the movie, of hiding it a little better. But when yeah. he first shows up uh, as, <laughs> as Young Bridges... Oh man, it was like they couldn't quite match the movement of the head to the movement of the body, and it was just like, oh man, Weird. this is creepy. this is really creepy to look at, and it shouldn't be creepy yet. Like but there from, are scenes later that should be creepy, and they work, but early in the movie, it's it's a little rough. The way I justify it in my you know fans' mind, okay, uh, I'm ready. It's a, it's a video game, <laughs> okay. So, you know, hey, all video games don't have A-plus <laughs> graphics. Maybe this was made go. by the B team. <laughs> and, and I don't know. His weird, creepy movement kind of adds to him him being a villain. Yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what I mean about it. Working later in the movie as we figure yeah. out who this is. Uh, and it, it does, you know, enhance that kind of creep factor. And you're like, I don't know if I trust this guy. I don't want to be around him. And you should. Yeah, maybe this, maybe this video game wasn't made for the PlayStation Four. Maybe it was a <laughs> PS2 remaster. Who knows? Exactly. Maybe, yes. Yeah. Who knows? We don't know. <laughs> That's good enough for me. I, I, I like. Who that. am I to judge? <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, and the other special effect I really like is there's a scene uh, later in the movie where Olivia Wilde's character um, like loses a limb essentially. And that is yes. really, I mean, not only technically beautiful, but also really disturbing. And I think it's really yes, it interesting <laughs> that she's one of the few kids, because all the other characters who are struck by these things immediately just go into a million pieces and disappear. And I think it's, you know, the fact that she is kind of I, what passes for like a different race in, in the grid world. I like the fact that they made that distinction here that you see that she is different and she, she is important and she does stand out. Yeah. No, I, that, that scene it's, it's both technically impressive and a little disturbing. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's quickly talk about our favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes from Tron legacy? I, okay. Obviously the nightclub fight. Uh, but the whole scene on the, um, I don't know what you would call it, the sky raft, mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, the Flynn's and Olivia Wilde. I keep forgetting her character's name. I'm sorry. It's cause it's also possible to pronounce it's Quora, I think is her. Okay. Sure. Name. So Olivia sure, Wilde's character. character. Yeah. Yeah. The whole, the whole, like <laughs> the lines of dialogue they have there. I, mm -hmm. I think I, I really like that scene. Yeah. That really works. So let's talk about that that bar sequence because and we talked about it a little bit, but it's you know I've been shitting on Garrett Headland a little bit in, in this episode, but God, he's really good in that action sequence. Yes, like, he is. There is a there is like a kinetic energy to his performance there that really works, and it has to because he's one of the only ones in that scene that is you know is someone we're connected to and is truly there. It's not just this both in the movie world and in the actual world, a computer construct. So he really yeah. has to carry a lot of the emotion and the power of that action sequence. And I think he does it really well. Oh yeah. He pulls it off and he's, he's a good action star mm -hmm. and he proves it here. I mean, I'd like to see him, you know, do some more action movies. Yeah. I think maybe with Kaczynski as the director. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they should just stick together and just, <laughs> Keep going, because it's not as if Garrett Hedlund's career is taking off, so might as well just go back to a, at least a movie that was received relatively well. Like, I remember this movie, like, not like it wowed anybody as far as, like, its critical yeah. reaction, but, like, it also, it, it reeked of a movie before I saw it that, like, uh, this could be really bad. Like, this could go really poorly. Like, trying to update this franchise 30 years later, like, this could fall flat on its face, and I think it actually did 
pretty well, considering. Like, this is not a movie that's designed to win Oscars. Like, this is not that kind of no. movie. So, But he's to, a good action star. I mean, hey, Kaczynski, put him in your new Top Gun movie. Do that. Yeah, why not? Why, why the heck not? He'd be fine in a movie like that. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting. I'm looking at the favorite scenes I listed, and they're all action scenes with Karen Hedlund. Like, I think <laughs> I think the motor, motorcycle chase at the very beginning really works really well. A lot of that okay. has to do with how it's filmed. Like, I think, actually, it's interesting. Like, I really like what Kaczynski did in the grid world. But, like, that may be one of my favorite sequences in the movie is the way the camera trails behind this motorcycle yes. as it's weaving through traffic. Like, you get... And it's important because it gives you, in the beginning of this movie, this sense of excitement even before you get to the really exciting stuff. Yeah, and, that whole that whole motorcycle thing in the beginning is awesome looking. Yeah, and it also sets up the cycle battle. It's another yes. it's another reason. A little that, bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, and another reason we could trust that Sam might be okay through this. And that yeah. scene is great. Also, the the kind of upside down battle that happens, like kind of right after that, I think is technically just kind of brilliant. Like it's it's interesting because at that point we feel like oh Sam's going to be okay, and then. Quite almost quite literally, the tables get turned uh, in this sequence <laughs> where he's where he's upside down and he is not prepared for this. And I think that would be another sequence that would be really easy to be really confusing for the audience. But you're never unsure of where you are and where the villains are and where your hero is. Yes, yeah. but Kaczynski knows how to make smart shot choices to not confuse the hell out of you. <laughs> Yeah, and it's so important in a movie like this that is so dependent on special effects. All right, uh, so I it was interesting. As I sat down to watch this movie, I was afraid that I was going to not like it on the second time <laughs> around because movies that are so dependent on the big screen and the special effects and all that sometimes don't hold up. But I actually mm-hmm. enjoyed this a fair amount more than I expected to. Like, I don't think it's the greatest movie of all time. Like you said, it's definitely got its weak spots. But this is really fun. Like this is a really it's, fun it's two may hours. Not be, may not be one of the best movies ever made, but it's one of the prettiest. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I will say the two hour runtime of this movie, it flies by. Like yes, it there's does. there's not and that is I mean, I've watched ninety five minute movies lately that I'm like, fuck, will you get going? Like Let's move. Yeah. And this movie is... Move along, I think like, people. I got other movies to watch. <laughs> exactly. I think this movie is like two hours and seven minutes, and it just really, yeah. really flies by. And I think the one thing we didn't mention in the production value is the music. I mean, the music is fucking fantastic here. Oh I mean, God. I mean, you I, got Daft Punk doing your entire soundtrack and actually I showing up in that bar scene. I mean, it's pretty great. Yeah, great cameo. I listen to that score all the time. And I I just love it. I mean, I bought the CD when it came out. It's been a mainstay in my car ever since. Uh, the two cars I've had since then. Uh, I just I just love the uh, the narration by Jeff Bridges throughout some of the tracks. Yes. I think that's really cool. Derezzed is an all timer Daft Punk track. Yep. It's just so freaking good. Yeah, the score is terrific. They 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 just they really knocked it out of the park with this one. Yeah, and it it's interesting because it kind of has to be because I remember that being like a big selling point. Like, oh, yep. Daft Punk did the did the score, and it was like, okay, this better be fucking good. Like, this better not just be like rehashed of their old stuff. And it definitely yeah. is not. It definitely stands out. It was a huge selling point. It was a huge marketing selling point too. Right. I had a T shirt with Daft Punk on it. That said Tron Legacy at the bottom. Right. There you go. I mean, I owned this thing. I wore it a lot. <laughs> that shirt ruled. But uh, unfortunately, got a rip in it, and I can't wear it anymore. Oh, that but, is tragic. But, yeah, they did an awesome job, and I don't know. It's it's one of my favorite film scores. Nice. All right, so let's move to the theme. So the theme is this kind of human connection in a digital world. So I think the real reason I chose this is is one of the things that I think is a little underexplored, and it's kind of okay that it is. I think it would be a little ridiculous if we focused even more on the relationship between Kevin Flynn and Sam Flynn. But the idea Mm -hmm. that this guy, like, you know, loved his son, cared for his son a great deal, and made the choice to move into the grid. You know, to disappear from his son's life. And that's really, I think, for Sam to not make many human connections in his own life because he really doesn't have anyone to connect to. So how did you think that theme played out um, in in Tron Legacy? Well, Flynn Sr., you know, he went out for cigarettes and never came back. And it took him 28 years to get that pack of cigarettes. But eventually he found him in the the Tron world. And 
don't know. I think it worked. It works for this movie. Uh, I'm a sucker for a uh, father son mm-hmm. dynamic in a in a movie or a father daughter dynamic in a film. Uh, I just love when they they attempt it, and I love when they can pull it off. And I think they pulled it off really well in this movie. I mean, you can tell that Jeff Bridges cares for him, like, but this is something he needed to do. Right. He needed to go into this world and fix it and make it perfect just to try to help the real world to, you know, right. achieve what he wanted to achieve. Like when he was saying, like, we're going to change everything. Yeah. And I think actually it's, to me, it's Jeff Bridges best moment when he realizes that Sam is really there and it's really, him. yeah, like it is, I mean, it's it's a moment that is really, really actually moving. And that's all in Jeff Bridges' face. Like, it just, it, you can see it just wash over him. Like, it's this, a little bit of relief that he's he's alive and that he's here. And then this sorrow and everything he's lost, because now he's a, he's a grown-ass man at this point. Yeah. And it all comes across <laughs> in, like, in three seconds of screen time. And not every actor can accomplish that. No, I mean, I, mean, I don't know if you, people know this, but, I mean, Jeff Bridges is a pretty good actor. He's all right. You know, <laughs> he's 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 pretty talented. And uh, yeah, yeah, that scene is very impressive. It's, it's like a three second moment where it just focuses on Jeff Bridges face and you're like, oh, he gets it now. Right. And I think the movie also uh, takes a little bit of an interesting stance. Like, I think you could see that Kevin Flynn is changed and not in all ways for the best by being. By being in the grid, by being connected, even though he's exactly. technically off the grid, but he's in this grid world, right? Uh, and I and I think yeah. you know it's it would be it would be I think an easier story to tell to be like, well, he's separate from this, and he hasn't you know he hasn't really experienced anything terrible because of it. He's just doing the right thing. But I think it has some interesting things to say about what happens when you get kind of too close to that digital world and not connected enough to the people around you. Yeah, he's connected but not at the same time. There's an obvious distance. I mean, he's like, what, a few hundred miles away from the grid? Uh, Yeah, the literal (laughs) uh, distance is there too, yeah. (laughs) And just isolating himself. But I like the way that he's connected yet not at the Mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, and I think, you know, not to get like too deep or anything, but I think we can all relate to that at some level, especially those of us who are very connected to like social media and the internet in general. Oh, most definitely. Like, I think Um, it's interesting because we can – like I now have this community of people that I consider friends who are literally all over the world. Like not just the United I've got friends in Australia, I've got, you know, friends in Europe, all this. And it's, but yet there is also a disconnection there because the vast majority of those people you will never interact with in the real world. You will in never life, go no. visit, you know? So there's this, there's this closeness and this distance. And I think you get that in the movie too. Uh, it brings me back to it's a phrase I've heard a bunch of times. Uh, together yet apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could be with in close proximity to someone, but you're not next to them right. really because you're focused on something else. And I think that's what this what Jeff Bridges' character is going through. But it's also what a lot of us go through, like what you were saying with social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're always together with people, but we're not with them. Right. Absolutely. And it's interesting. It goes both ways. Like not only with the people, you know, across the world that you're talking to, you can't really be with them. But also, you know, as we're on our phones and there's people right next to us, we may be in close proximity with them, but we're not with them either because our minds are being shipped off through our phones and through our computers to other places. Yeah, and sometimes you know we can't be bothered with the person sitting right next to us well, anyway. So maybe, maybe we're sometimes, better off. Sometimes that person sucks. I mean, that's it's yeah. just the way it is. Some kind, sometimes they're awful. And that's it's fine. true, and sometimes they're small children, and you don't want anything to do with them. So uh, it all works out. All right. Um, so yeah. So I'm really glad I rewatched this movie. Actually. Um, so the connection. It's fun. It is. So the connection to Blade Runner 2049. Of course, Blade Runner. Uh, is a movie I cannot be unbiased about. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's, I think you know, I don't say like movies are perfect hardly ever because I, I think that comes off as a little pompous and ridiculous because 
every movie can be tweaked. And I mean, God knows Ridley Scott has tweaked and improved upon Blade Runner over the years with its like yes, 19 it versions that are out there. But I absolutely love this movie. There's not, there's not a single scene I don't adore. So when I first heard they were going to make a sequel, I was legitimately angry. Like I was like, no, don't you dare. But then I heard Denis Villeneuve was going to direct it. I was like, okay, if anybody yeah. is going to do this, I'm a little bit more okay. I'm still, I'm still a little worried. Uh, not like it's going to ruin the original because nothing can. But like, do no, I? Because want... the original's still there, right? Exactly. But do I want to go back to that world just to be disappointed? You know, that's definitely a worry. Uh, but a little less worrisome, given that I, you know, of the movies I've seen of Denis Villeneuve, there hasn't been a bad one yet. So I've only I... seen two, and uh, I've loved them both. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Give me more. So okay. he's he's earned trust. Yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. And then, and then seeing the trailer, I was like, I was kind of won over because like, man, it really looks like he has recreated <laughs> this world. Like it's similar to the, I mean, similar to the idea of Tron and Tron Legacy, where it looks different enough to be its own movie, but yeah. it, it feels like Blade Runner. And there are so few directors that can pull that off. So I'm really excited to see Blade Runner 2049. What about you? Okay, I Ridley Ridley Scott's my favorite filmmaker. Uh, Alien is my favorite film of all time. Okay, and Blade Runner is constantly knocking on the door for number two. Right, Uh, the hell of a double feature, man. Fuck, it's oh yeah, it's it's always knocking on the door. It wants to be my second favorite film of all time, and it's getting there. It Mm -hmm. really is. I love Blade Runner so much. I. Don't even know how many times I've bought this movie on various <laughs> let's, forms. Let's not of think media. about that. That'll just make me cry as all my money Please. flies out the door. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had that. I had that director's cut DVD for years. Yep. Uh, I had the five disc Blu-ray set that came out with every yep. version of the movie. <laughs> uh, there was another Blu-ray set that came out. It had a book, so oh, we yeah. got that. Had that one too. <laughs> uh, last month, I just bought the the four disc. Blade Runner 4K hmm. set. So yeah, I've I've put a lot of money into my love for <laughs> Blade Runner over the years and when I heard there was a sequel coming, I got excited because hmm. sure, give me more of this world. Right. And then I got worried. Uh I I was my expectations got lowered. I was like, what if it's not good? You know, I mean <laughs> I, I was hearing things, then I was like, oh, Jared Leto's in it. And, and it's oh, two hours and 45 minutes. And Oh, no, that made me very excited. <laughs> give, give me a three-hour Blade Runner movie, please. <laughs> but, and then, but then I was hearing you know, some early reactions where someone said, hey, Leto's not in it as much as you'd think. And I was like, oh, okay, my God, that, that makes me so happy. <laughs> you just made my day. And then, I don't know, I'm just hearing a lot of positive word of mouth about this thing. Mm-hmm. And... I am so excited to go back to this world. Uh, and I, after seeing the trailer, I mean, uh, I'm guessing you've seen Dangerous Days, the, the the documentary. Yes, yes. Okay, I love that basically there's a whole scene in that trailer that's from one of the original drafts of Blade Runner. Yeah. Uh, where Batista is basically playing this farmer that, you know, in the original screenplay, Deckard went to investigate and then, you know, he rips his face off or whatever. But the fact that they're adding that character into this movie, I'm like, oh, my God, they're taking bits and pieces from discarded Blade Runner one ideas yep. and putting it this. It's going to it's from a conceptual and a, and a standpoint like that. It's a dream come true. It's mm-hmm. it's everything I could have wanted so far just from what I know. And oh, my God, Thursday night cannot come fast enough. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm right there with you. The only negative I have going into this movie at this point, because like, you know, the early reviews are in and you hear words tossed around like masterpiece a, and blah, blah, blah. So I haven't read any reviews, but I've seen like some headlines and they're, you know, pretty good. And even the like relatively negative reviews are like, it's still fucking beautiful to look at. So I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> at least all that. It's still really good, guys. But the, the only negative is that Jared Leto's character was originally supposed to be played by David Bowie. Uh, and then he died uh, in the last year, and I was like, ah, that would be this would be the perfect movie, like a Blade Runner movie directed by Bill Du with David Bowie. Like that's, <laughs> it was just it was too much good. Something something had to not work out. Sad. So yeah, uh, but I am definitely looking forward to this. Sounds like you are too. So that's good. Hopefully, oh God, uh, I on, can't wait. Hopefully on Thursday evening, both of us will be very happy. So fingers crossed for that. 
Um, so one more time before you leave, why don't you tell people how to reach you on Twitter uh, so they can, you know, read your work at Talk Film Society and listen to your podcast at Hey What You Watch. Yeah, well, you can always find me on the Twitter at the Real Matt C, uh, spelt just like it sounds. And uh, I'm knee deep in horror because it's October, so expect a lot of horror movie talk over the next few weeks, and then expect horror movie talk throughout the rest of the year because that's what I love. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, and thank you to Matt for being our guest on Tron Legacy. So this week, we may or may not have a new release episode. This is the week, of course, that Blade Runner 2049 comes out, a movie I have been looking forward to ever since they announced it, so that should be fun. And if you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can email me at popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at PCCaseStudy. And really, you can find me at every social media outlet under PCCaseStudy or PopCultureCaseStudy. But if you want to help us out with your money, we would never say no to that. So you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis. You can support your local independent podcast and get some really cool rewards. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Yeah, you have it. You woke up with this. This is like a free U2 album. You exactly. woke up with this. Exactly. Yours, exactly. Pop Culture Case Study U2. Basically the same thing. That's, yeah, we're on the right. same level. It's good. I'll see you